Welcome back to the Running Wild podcast. We're again on our series of Running Wild novellas, Anthology Volume 2, Part 2. My guest is Mark Leahy, and my guest story is Collected Works. Hello, Mark. Hello. So you are a professor. You got the whole PhD and everything. Mm Mm-hmm. That's impressive. Uh, I was burned out by the time I got my bachelor's. Uh, Well, just because because I finished doesn't mean I didn't get burned out. (laughs) <laughs> but you went into school for creative writing, but you now you teach technical writing. So let's talk a little bit about that transition. So, I mean, I think the most important thing is there's a lot of carryover between the things you care about in creative writing and what makes good technical writing. If you're particularly interested in like how a specific word changing to a different word affects the, the meaning of the sentence, I think that capacity carries over. But there's also a lot of stuff you have to sort of set aside and you really try to focus on what do people with this specific job need? What information do they need? What do they need to do their jobs better? And so it's really trying to balance what works and what doesn't work. Going in, your your intention was to be an artist, I presume, because you, you do, do you do the MFA or go straight to the PhD? No, I did. I did an MFA. And that was all I had intended to do. But I thought I was going to hate teaching. And I ended up really liking it. And so one of the reasons I stayed in is because it makes it easier for you to teach at a university if you have a PhD. And I was also just interested in the things that I was learning. And I really wanted to travel a little bit further down that road and and, and ask those questions. So I come from a science background academically. My degree is in math. And I know that to get your PhD in math, your thesis is to do some very obscure (laughs) aspect of a proof. So I'm, I'm guessing to, to get a PhD in English, you've got to take a verb and use it in a way that nobody's <laughs> used it before. My project ended up being a lot more sort of historical research than, than it had started out. And so I was looking specifically at 19th century blackface menstrual plays and specifically ones where they were mocking scientists. Because what I was interested in is the relationship between what we called race science in, in the 19th century and, and humor and racial humor and sort of looking at how both of those really awful white supremacist endeavors kind of fed off of each other. But yes, you're right. Very, very obscure and a very tiny little subsection of an obscure subject. So by science, do you mean eugenics? It was a lot of that. Um, in the 19th century, we had a lot of theories just about where the diversity of human beings comes from. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about Polynesia. The Bible doesn't, (laughs) right? And so in the 19th century, especially a lot of scientists had to figure out a way to explain all of this diversity where religion had really been doing that job for people. Adam and Eve and the garden and all of that. It worked for a while, but then the more we learned about humans, the, the more scientists wanted a scientific explanation of race, but they were also the scientists in the 19th century in America were all, you know, very committed to white supremacy. So what they were Mm -hmm. really looking for was what's the thing that's going to tell us that white supremacy is natural and, and good. And they never found that because it doesn't exist. What form did the satire take? It's a very recognizable caricature of a scientist who is maybe a charlatan or the word they were using at the time was a quack who says a lot of technical ease kind of words at you to convince you that they know what they're talking about, but it's actually gibberish. And so this is a super common trope, not just in the 19th century, but now you'll see this same sort of caricature. But in minstrelsy, it's also a racist caricature because that quack is also African-American. And so it is a way of looking at 
how humor and science interacted, particularly around the idea of race. It's like a little, uh, it's a little Petri dish and you can observe how the culture through science and through humor is sort of trying to figure out a way to talk about this. And what's really interesting is the ways that they figured out to talk about it are things that you would recognize today. Like I said, like this, this caricature of somebody who says a lot of fancy sounding words, but they're actually not saying anything. But that was your PhD. For your MFA, that's where you got started on this story, Collected Works, correct? Yeah, so this was my, my master's thesis. It was a much longer book uh, when it was the, my master's thesis. I was trying to do a lot more in terms of exploring different voices in the story. It was all third person, but it was told from the point of view of a revolving cast of characters. I don't know if you've heard of novels like that, but I was going to try my hand at one of those, and, and um, that's what the version that I submitted for the MFA was. Every scene was a brand new character or you had a set of like 12? I think it would be every couple of chapters I would change the point of view. So everybody would get two or three. And then I would, I would switch to who I felt had the more active role in the story going forward. It was a full novel when you got your MFA. Yeah, it was about uh, 300 something pages. But then you kept working on it. I kept working on it and I kept working on it. And eventually it got to the point where I felt like the only way to deal with it was to throw it away and start over again. I'd gotten a little bit of attention from literary agents when it was finished the first time right after the MFA. And that had gotten me sort of convinced that it was something that eventually, if I just pushed hard enough, would succeed. But then I, just, I kept getting less and less happy with the way it was. I started to feel like it was really piecemeal and that I was switching voices just to do it. And that I was really only interested in one particular character and one particular side of the story. Is that the character that is now the focus character? And that and that became, yes, Justine, who is the, the sister in the story. Her brother dies. She loses her job on the same day. And as we all would, goes into a period in her life where she feels bad about how she's doing. The thing that pulls her out of that is she reconnects with with art. She had been a, a, a middle school art teacher before she was fired. And so she reconnects with art and particularly around doing art that helps her work through her memories of her brother. But she doesn't know a lot about her brother because he worked in the military and intelligence. And there are just things that she's not allowed to know about what he did or where he was. And so she decides that what she really needs in her life and the, the projects she's most interested in is to try to go around the world to places where her brother was, talk to people who knew him and try to document his life in her art. And that, and that will be a way of her sort of preserving him, but also getting to know him and sort of work through her own feelings. But then that's drawing on your own life, right? Right, so the, the job that the brother has, his, his name is Dodd in the story, is what my father did when I was when I was growing up. He was in the Air Force. He was an Arabic linguist. And beyond that, I don't really know a lot about what he did. There are large periods of, of my childhood where he was away and we weren't allowed to know what he was doing or where he was. If we talked to him on the phone, we were warned not to really give away any details about where we were, not to ask him where he was. You know, it, it's, it's a very difficult way to... to have a family. And so part of writing this was me trying to work through that as, as well. And so there's a little bit of a parallel between what Justine is working on and, and sort of how I feel about my dad. Is your father still with us? 
He is, he is. But it, it's weird because he's still, you know, legally, he's retired from the Air Force, but a lot of this is still stuff he's not allowed to talk about. And so I can talk to him about what he's up to now as much as I want, but there's still this, you know, 20-year period where I, I do not know what he was up to. Does he know you wrote this story with, with this aspect in it? He has seen, I think he saw it when it was my master's thesis. I don't think he's seen this new version, but yeah, he knows that I'm writing about it and he knows that I'm interested in what he was up to, but you know, his, his answer hasn't changed. Um, <laughs> and, and I mean, for, for real, you know, it, it's, it's, it's national security is scary. You know, he doesn't want to go to jail. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's following the letter of the law. So you don't approach him like, so if this character had to be somewhere <laughs> in this year, well, now that you would be a good it. suggestion. I need some feedback. Well, actually, now that you mention it, yeah, I will try to like kind of squeeze out details or ask him, you know, would this be a believable thing for someone with your job to have done? But it's funny because you'll, you'll see him just remember the rules. So he'll start answering a question and then he'll catch himself and, and say, I can't talk about that. So or I or I can't provide those kind of details for you. The the metaphor in the book is that it's 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 like a puzzle. The way that intelligence services find out things about people is they never find out the whole story. You know, they might ask you, is so-and-so traveling in the next couple of months? And so, yeah, if they find out my dad is traveling in the next couple of months, they might find out from somebody else where that is. They might find out from somebody else, you know, some other part of his job. And so they can piece together really detailed pictures of what, you know, other countries are doing with very, very small details that accumulate. And so that's why they drilled into us, uh, sister as well, when we were kids, don't tell people these things about your family, don't talk about these things, don't ask these questions. If somebody asks you what your parents do, tell the police is, is, is what we <laughs> wow. were. If anyone is snooping around asking a lot of questions about your family, you know, tell, tell an adult. How many times did you do that? Well, there was one time where I saw people taking pictures of our house and I called an adult friend of my parents and told him, and he informed the police. I don't know what happened because they don't tell you what happened. But you didn't actually witness the black van show up and grab them. But if, or maybe those people were supposed to be there, like that. And that's something the novel also sort of gets into is there are a lot of just these encounters where you don't get the whole story, where something was up, you know, something was happening, but you never find out what that what that was. And then how do you tell yourself the story of your own life? What was going on? You know, why were these people taking pictures of my house? Maybe they were just real estate agents. I don't know. That's a great source of tension, though, because like literally they cannot know. Right. I know more about what my dad did by reading books about the NSA that James Banford wrote. And it filled in so many of the details about why we lived in a particular place or what was going on in the world at the time that are just things that that people in the military would not tell me. So then you've cut down your novel. You've got it to novella size, but that's an awkward size. It's a better size now than it was a few years ago because digital publishing and everything. But when you realized you had a novella, what did you, what did you think? When I rewrote it, when I wrote it the second time, I decided that I wasn't going to write towards some ambitious scope. I think a lot of the reason why I wanted to do revolving voices and things like that is that I just had this idea of writing a big novel that was going to be big and important and have a lot of important ideas in it. And I think that's a lot of what had gotten in my way is, is sort of forcing myself to broaden the scope of it. And so when I realized that what I really wanted to do was to write about Justine 
and write it from her point of view and her voice, that I was going to give myself permission to write it very directly and not worry about how long it was going to be at the end, to just to write the best book I could write. So I was kind of surprised when it ended up being as long as it is. I didn't really view it as a crisis, but it is a lot harder to find people who are actively looking for novellas. And then how did you find Running Wild? Well, you know, this really great thing happened, which is I remember logging into Submittable years and years and years ago and wishing it had a search function. And I don't think it did at the time, or I didn't know where it was. But in the past year or so, I've been logging in, and now they will let you type in novella and see who wants them. Before that, you would do Google searches and find a call out for novellas from 2014 or something, you know, that was already (laughs) out of date. And it was just really hard. And I I couldn't figure out where people were finding, you know, these novella contests and and, and things like that. So it was was really just – the other thing, I, I haven't told you this, I gave up on this book. The, 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 I had given up on anybody wanting to publish it. I felt like I had written a book that I was proud of and that I had, had really enjoyed the process of writing it and I had learned a lot and I felt like I did a good job. But I was totally okay with nobody ever wanting to publish it or read it. And so it was really just this sort of last gasp to say, okay, now that, now that I can find places that want novellas, I guess I'll send it out one last time. And it ended up being the right place. And the entire experience has just been so wonderful. Lisa at Running Wild is, is wonderful to work with. And I'm really glad I didn't give up all the way. Because <laughs> I was, I was going to... They tell you in, 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 uh, in uh, MFA school, they tell you to not do what I did. They tell you to take your MFA thesis, put it in a drawer, and come back to it later. And that's probably what I should have done. But... I don't know. It was just, it was the only story I was really interested in telling. And and I finally, I think I found the right place for it. Excellent. Well, you can't argue with the results. Exactly. So what are you working on now? I'm working on what I believe will be a novel, but I have about five chapters in. It's about a group of young people in the mid nineties planning and executing a murder. Why are they murdering somebody? Well, it's complicated. Um, Okay. (laughs) But um, say no more. (laughs) But they have, you know, they have what I hope to be adequate reasons. But a lot of it is 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 been about dealing with the fallout of having planned and executed a murder with three people. Ah, okay. And then people can find you on Twitter, mxrk. Um, yep, which is just Mark with an X. And then Instagram underscore mx4k underscore, and we'll have both of those in the show notes. Thank you. The anthology is Running Wild Novella Anthology. Your host has been Tone Malazzo. The author is Mark Leahy. The story is Collected Works, and this is in part two of volume two. Thanks for being with me, Mark. Thank you so much.